So welcome to Renew. Thank you for joining us, and uh, please continue to fill out your My Encounters card. They've been a blessing, and excited to hear from uh, John this morning as he shares an encounter with Jesus. So um, I know that it's, uh, I keep making a big deal about people coming up front, but uh, it's been a blessing, and I won't ask you the same question to set you up again. Uh, I'm lying, I will. You've enjoyed them. And people will enjoy hearing your story, too. So this is all for God's glory. So uh, we're just thankful for that. We're going to continue on in our, in our series here. We are going to talk about Pharisees. And uh, just be prepared to be offended, because I was. So with that said, um, if you could uh, stand for the reading of God's word, if you're able to, please do so and turn to Matthew 23, verses 1 through 12. Matthew 23 verses 1 through 12. And it reads, Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The teachers of religious law and the Pharisees are the official interpreters of the law of Moses. So practice and obey whatever they tell you, but don't follow their example. For they don't practice what they teach. They crush people with unbearable religious demands and never lift a finger to ease the burden. Everything they do is for show. On their arms, they wear extra-wide prayer boxes with scripture verses inside, and they wear robes with extra-long tassels. And they love to sit at the head table at the banquets and in the seats of honor in the synagogues. They love to receive respectful greetings as they walk in the marketplace and to be called rabbi. Don't let anyone call you rabbi, for you have only one teacher, and all of you are equal as brothers and sisters. And don't address anyone here on earth as father, for only God in heaven is your father. And don't let anyone call you teacher, for you have only one teacher, the Messiah. The greatest among you must be the servant, but those who exalt themselves will be humble, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for this time that we have together, Lord. Thank you for your word. We're just so, so thankful for your son's sacrifice, Lord, for the fact that we're able to gather because of him. Thank you for your spirit. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for being here, working in our lives, Lord. And as we go through the scripture, will you reveal it to us, prepare our hearts to receive what you have, Lord. There's so much um, that you're doing in our lives that we can't even comprehend or recognize, especially all the things that you're doing behind the scenes that we don't even know. Thank you that you've won the battle. We'll just continue to uh, just praise you and worship you through all the seasons, Lord. And Lord, as we prepare our hearts to receive your word, where you use me however you see fit, whatever you want me to say, I say whatever you don't, don't. We thank you. We love you in Christ's name. Amen. You may have a seat. So this morning is a slightly different encounter. If you've been with us for the last several weeks, we have been going through the Gospels and looking at encounters Jesus has had with individuals or groups of people, and we've brought to life, um, to light, those who Jesus directly impacted, also those who were in the background who he also impacted, both the good and the bad. And, and, and this morning, again, it will be slightly different than the encounters that we've been doing. Up until this point, uh, the people that Jesus has encountered has been mostly positive, except for the one time when we talked about the rich young ruler. 
if you remember the rich young ruler, he came to Jesus and he asked, what must I do to inherit the kingdom of heaven? I've kept all the rules. They go back and forth. And Jesus says, go and sell everything. And he turns and he walks away because he just can't. And that should break your heart. It breaks my heart that Jesus says, this is what you should do. You add up the costs and you say, no thanks. But other than that, we've seen Jesus change the lives of a blind man, of the uh, socially awkward to the rejected to so many different people. We've walked through and seen so many different people. And we've watched how their lives have changed at the response to Jesus. Not only did Jesus come to them, rescue them, save them, heal them, perform a miracle in their life, which again from last week, a miracle the miracles that Jesus did simply was returning things back to the way they were before sin encountered. But we've watched the change of lives, but this morning we're going to talk about Pharisees. Now the Pharisees are brought up several times in the New Testament, and uh, as we consider this, this is not just the people group which there were 6,000 Pharisees at the time, we will discuss about where they came from, how they came about, what happened to them. But at the heart of it, what we're going to discuss is how the encounter with Jesus dealing with a Pharisee and the tendency within ourselves of having a Pharisee nature. For all intents and purposes... We're just going to discuss what Jesus said as he's describing to the crowd, the Pharisees. I'll also read another account when Jesus gives a parable to discuss the Pharisees. But really, this morning, we're just going to consider what a Pharisee is. And if you're, if you're sitting here this morning and you don't know what a Pharisee is, I hope to explain the people group well enough. If you already know the Pharisees, and you don't and you despise them be careful someone this morning texted me letting me know that they were praying for me and they said um, i'm praying for you and then hoping to have my inner pharisee purged out and i replied thank you i'm afraid there is a pharisee faucet that has an annoying drip in my heart and um, so what I'm going to attempt to do in a very loving way is call you Pharisees, for those of you who are followers of Christ, while suggesting that I am not a Pharisee. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> that we can have the tendency to be a Pharisee. And my hope and prayer this morning is for us to consider where the Pharisees who are the Pharisees? Where did they come from? What happened to them? Why is this people group who are no longer officially around still can and does live within the believers today? So this, some disclaimers up front, just because, just to buckle up and prepare. Disclaimer number one, if you find yourself this morning thinking of other people other than yourself as a Pharisee, that is a dangerous place to be. If you find yourself thinking that this morning, this message is for somebody else, stop and ask yourself, why that person? And also, side note, as quickly as we are to call people Pharisees, the Pharisees were happy to be called Pharisees. They took it as a compliment. Pharisee actually just means to separate oneself. And that's what they were hoping to do. 
Another disclaimer, if at any time you find yourself thinking, well, what about the rules? Well, what about the truth? Ask yourself this question, what specific rule are you concerned grace will interrupt? What specific rule are you concerned grace will interrupt? Then put a name to the person. Don't be vague. Don't say those people, them or they. Think of a certain person. For example, I have talked to my brother in length about this last week or two weeks ago, however long it's been. I went to a, a, a pastor's thing where they basically beat us up, and it was really good because I like to get beat up. And uh, my brother's a pastor, and it was down south, so I stayed with him, and we went, and we discussed this in great length. But for this rule, again, asking yourself this question what specific rule are you concerned grace will interrupt? As I was talking to my, my brother about it, when he was much younger, um, he had a cussing problem. He also said nasty jokes and said real mean things. He wasn't a follower of Christ until he got into college, and we butted heads because me, as the older brother, I followed the rules. He, as the younger brother, followed zero of the rules, and I didn't like him for it. And I always felt, and we discussed this in length, so my application for this rule, what specific rule am I concerned grace will interrupt? The rule was don't let any, any unwholesome talk come from your mouth. Dominic Matthew Jackson. I said his whole name. <clears throat> that's all right. He's preaching this morning and he's using my name, but that's okay. <clears throat> we agreed. But that's, that's what it was. So my question, just, just so you could follow along with me, just... just what specific rule am I concerned grace will interrupt? Well, if he keeps cussing and saying mean things and coarse jokes and all this other stuff, well, actually, I don't know how grace will mess it up. I found that whenever I stopped nagging him and I allowed God to do what God does, he became a better person. And so did I. And a, and a warning, or at least something that was very convicting for me this week, this message has been very challenging this week considering Pharisees because as I was going through it, I did think of a, about a lot of you. And then I thought a lot about me. And then the more I kept thinking about me, then I got upset that I was thinking about me and it was a vicious circle. And then I thought, I don't want to, I'm going to preach on something else. <laughs> but here I am. But the, the one thing that, that, one main thing, one main theme, one main sentence that God gave me was grace is not an excuse for sin. It is the answer for sin. Grace is not an excuse for sin, it is an answer for sin. So again, just, just some of these qualifying, these disclaimers. If you find yourself this morning thinking of other people other than yourself as a Pharisee, that is a dangerous place to be. If you find yourself thinking that this morning, ask yourself, why am I thinking that person? Give that person a name, not to pick on them, but what is it? And you'll probably find that there's some correlation with the Pharisee heart that that you can have. The second one, and I believe applying this to the Pharisees, I believe one of the biggest hurdles the Pharisees faced when they encountered Jesus was his grace. And they continued to ask, well, what about the rules? What about the laws? I'm a rule follower. What about all that? And accepting and giving Jesus' grace would radically change these Pharisees' lives and those who they thought they were better than. That's what their concern was. And they were afraid, 
honestly that their what their identity would become if they accepted God's grace. Because grace is so unfair. It levels the playing field. And I'll touch on it in another time, but just so that way you can start considering where we're going. But just consider this. When we read the story of the prodigal son in Luke, we must see that sin is on display. We see it. And we, we look at this younger son who's run away and committed all kinds of sin. But when we are reading that story, we have to be careful and not overlook the sin of the older brother. But we'll touch on that in a little bit. But that comment I made that grace is unfair, and that's why it's grace. And if again, if you find yourself thinking of Pharisees in your life, ask why. And if you're worried about too much grace, and you're finding yourself asking these questions, well, what about the rules? Why us and them? Perhaps me giving a little bit of the background of the Pharisees might help shape this just a little bit. So where did the Pharisees come from? The Pharisees are not mentioned in the Old Testament at all. Pharisees, Sadducees, um, the NLT says religious law. Uh, some translations is, uh, calls them various things, scribes, religious laws of scribes. But none of these people are in the Old Testament, so where did they come from? They're, we only see them in the New Testament. And, and if you remember when we did this series on Ezra and Nehemiah, if you remember, whenever the Israelites were in captivity, they were taken over by the Babylonians. Then the Persians came and they freed them, they liberated them, they were allowed to go back to Jerusalem, they being the Israelites. They began rebuilding the temple. They started going back and to the good old days. There was a group of people that got together and said, we can never allow this to happen again. We can never allow ourselves as a society, as a Jewish society, to fall back into sin. So we're going to circle the wagons. Has anyone ever said circle the wagons? They didn't use that word, but I use that word. Have you ever just thought, you know what? We just have to start it over. We're going down this place that we didn't want to go. We just have to hit a reset. We have to start over. We have to circle the wagons. We have to uh, be in community with believers. We have to protect ourselves. We need to be in this world, but not of this world. So these group of people got together and said, we're going to make sure that we follow the rules that Moses gave us to a T. Because if you remember the whole reason why they went back in, they went into captivity, they were slaves to the Babylonians, to Nebuchadnezzar, is for two reasons. One, idols. They had idols. Real bad idols. All kinds of idols. Number two is they did not respect the Sabbath. They did not take a day of rest. They did not take the year of Jubilee, which every, the seventh year, they had to not work at all. When we were in Israel in September, we would drive by these farms and there would be a big sign saying the year of Sabbath. And the, the farmlands just was overgrown and wasn't taken care of. So for six years, they would work really hard on their farms. And then for the seventh year, they still practice the Sabbath and the farm just set. Who here wants to take a year off from work? <laughs> right? Yeah. Okay. Who here who's a farmer would like just to let their trees or whatever their crop is just go? Well, slow down now. Hold on. All right? They didn't do this. 
So if you add up, they were in captivity for 70 years because for 700 years they did not respect the law. And if you do the math, God was just getting back what was his for his people. So these Pharisees, they got together and said, we will never allow this to happen. We will not let the Babylonian, the Syrian, the Persian, and eventually the Romans interfere with us following the Lord. Now, we live in a time in our country where don't you want to go back to a previous time where there was more Christian values? Yes, I hope so. Yet, you can take that to an extreme and go buy a compound in the middle of nowhere and hide. But what they did is not only did they want to go run and hide, they wanted everybody else to go and do exactly what they said. So then for the next several hundred years, they came up with more rules, not just the Ten Commandments, not just the rules uh, that, uh, that they would follow, but they also said, let us give rules in order for you to follow the rules so you can follow the rules. Some of the rules that you may find silly is you were not allowed to make a meal on the Sabbath, on Shabbat, on Saturday. Couldn't do that. So you had to make all, make all of the food beforehand. You could not tie your shoes because that was work. In Israel today, you, cannot, you can use the elevator, but you can't push a button. So when we were in Israel, and if you were at the very top floor, you would have to wait and pray that the elevator door would open because you weren't allowed to push the button. And then it would open and it would stop at every floor. It's as if a kid went in there and went to all the buttons. You can do that. You can drive a car. That was work. Uh, going back to this time, you, if, uh, you couldn't tie your belt. Uh, you couldn't tie your shoes. There was all of these rules in order to follow rules. You couldn't walk more than two miles in a day because that was work. So what these Pharisees were doing, I truly believe deep down in their heart because even we'll see what Jesus mentions about them. At the heart of the matter, they were concerned about falling to the wayside. They were worried about the people falling to the wayside. The problem is they went too far and they forgot grace. They went too far and then they started getting very proud of their performance. They started to believe that they deserved all of the respect because look at how hard I work. So as you consider this more, uh, just in the New Testament, I mentioned that's the only time they show up. There's 87 times the Pharisees are mentioned in the New Testament, 82 of which is the interaction with Jesus, either directly with Jesus, Jesus is telling a story about them, or they're plotting to kill Jesus. The other five is in Acts, and the, and the Pharisees are dealing with Paul. If you remember two years ago, I think it was, however long, whenever we were in the other place, we, we did Acts. So the Pharisees only show up in the New Te Testament. They were regularly called hypocrites. Regularly called hypocrites. The definition of a hypocrite is a person who says one thing and does another, but it's actually the word that was used for an actor because someone would put on a performance that wasn't really who they were. In the Shakespearean time, they would wear these big elaborate masks to show the emotion. So if it was a comedy, it would be the weird, creepy, happy face. If they were sad, very sad face. But deep down inside, the person behind that mask wasn't the person they were portraying. And they were very much the do's and don'ts. If you, if you go to Matthew 23, again, and you just take a look, 
It says, then Jesus, verse 1, said to the crowds and to his disciples, the teachers of the religious law, or scribes and Pharisees, are the official interpreters of the law of Moses. Jesus said they are doing it right. They interpret the law correctly. So, verse 3, practice and obey whatever they tell you. Wait a minute. Jesus is saying follow what the Pharisees say? But then he goes on, but don't follow their example. So it's not so much necessarily that they were teaching something and doing something else. That was a problem. They were teaching something, but their example of it was so extreme, so ridiculous that no one could live up to it. For they don't practice what they teach because there's this heavy burden because they feel like they have arrived, that they are in a position to teach, but not to follow what they're teaching. And verse 4, it says, they crush people with unbearable religious demands and never lift a finger to ease the burden. So that stuck out to me. I was considering, in, in what ways have I been a Pharisee? And I'll pick on my brother again. In what ways did I put all of this religious demands and never lift a finger to ease the burden? One of the things that I thought would help my brother whenever he said a bad word, is that I would slap him in the mouth. You think I'm joking. I didn't punch him. We weren't allowed to punch each other. We were allowed to slap each other, apparently. So I'd slap him. And then, of course, he'd slap me back, and then we would fight. Duh. But, and, and, and again, this is when we were roughly junior high and high school, so it's not that we were kids. We knew better, but I just said, I'm going to help you out. Because he wore a rubber band, and every time he said something bad, he'd snap it. Well, that didn't work. He wore four rubber bands, and that didn't work. So I said, I'm going to help this guy out. Then, so, then we were like, oh, a swear jar. Anyone ever have a swear jar? No? Man, you guys are holy people. Holy smokes. Man, I could have bought a car twice over by now. So then you had to put money in it. Oh, then that didn't work? Well, then I'm going to take your money and slap. Like, it was just, I, I wanted so badly for him to do the right thing and never got to the heart. Always the external. That's just like with your children when you're at a grocery store or a store or whatever and they, and they act up and you give them that look. And why do you give them that look? Why do you want them to act, to behave properly at a store or in public? Well, yes, they should, but more for your sake, right? What will other people think? Have you ever been giving it, telling your kids something and someone you knew walked down the aisle and then it was awkward? <laughs> but why? why? Why are we so concerned about that? Yes, we could say in our hearts, yes, we want, the, we want to raise godly children, which is true. But when we're out in public, we more want people to know that we have godly children. I remember there was uh, down south, um, there was part of the ministry that we had down there was uh, children with special needs. And there was a ministry, and one of the moms had shared at one of the Bible studies how she had gone from, well, her story was, she said, when we would go to the store or when we go in public, he would have an outburst because he couldn't communicate very clearly. He also had Tourette's, which still did not help, and she would describe all of the ailments. And she said, at first, I was so embarrassed, I just wanted to wear a sign and put a sign on him and said, my child 
has special needs. So that way everybody would know that's the reason why this, my son of mine was acting out. She, come to, she eventually had come to the spot where she was ministering to people saying, I no longer care about the labels, care about them wearing the labels. I just want to love my son well. She was so caught up in what it looked like that she overlooked the love that she had for her son because she was so worried. Oh, no, no, he's, he's a student with special needs. He's really not a bad child. See, these Pharisees, what they were doing is, here are all the things that you must do in order to be a follower of Christ so that we never go back into captivity. You don't want to go in captivity, do you? Well, do you? No. So these are the rules that you need to follow. And then verse 5, if you look at verse 5, it says, everything they do, this is Jesus talking about the Pharisees, everything they do is for show. On their arms, they wear extra-wide prayer boxes with scripture verses inside them, and they wear robes with extra-long tassels. We'll stop there. If you, I have a picture here, I think, of two pictures, of the Shema, the prayer boxes. So even today, when you go to Israel, you will see Jewish men and women, but primarily the men wearing boxes with the Shema, which is the scripture um, from Deuteronomy and Numbers, and they would either wear a box on their head while they're praying or on their left arm with the box close to their armpit because it was close to the heart because we are supposed to keep God's word in our heart and in our minds, right? What better way than to physically wear them on your face? <laughs> but, so that's what a good Jewish person would do. But do you notice that, that Jesus, what Jesus says uh, specifically about them? Everything they do is for show on their arms. They wear extra wide prayer boxes. I think the next picture may show it. See, that's the way. Extra, you see the one to your left? That's, that's a bigger one. That's the one the Pharisees would wear. The common folk would wear the smaller ones. Why? Look at how religious I am. Let's, let's apply this. Look at how small my Bible is compared to yours. Well, you should see the desk Bible I have at home. Like I, It's so much more. So what Jesus is saying is it's not so much they care about the heart. They just want to look good. It goes on in verse 6, Matthew 23, verse 6, and it says, They love to sit at the head of the table at banquets and the seats of honor and in the synagogues. They love to receive respect, respectful greetings as they walk in the marketplace and to be called rabbi. They were so proud of the title that they have earned. Earned. So what happened to these Pharisees? There's no longer a group of people who are called Pharisees. So what happened to them? What happened to them is in AD 73 during the Roman and, and Jewish conflict, whenever the, Roman, or whenever the Jewish people were finally done with the Romans, they thought they were going to fight back. There was a big battle in Masada, and this is where King Herod had built this big palace, and he probably only went there once maybe. And uh, there was a big battle that they, the Jewish people all ran to the top of Masada. We have a picture of what Masada looks like. Or can you show the other one maybe? Yeah, there's Masada. Whenever we go to Israel, I don't know when we're going, but whenever we go to Israel, 
Hopefully, Lord willing, we'll go there. And there's this big fortress. So all of the Jewish people who were fighting against the Romans, they eventually retreated to this place. And it was impenetrable. So what the Romans did is they took three years to build a ramp. That's the previous picture. A dirt ramp. So as they were building this ramp, that, I mean, it's modernized, it was much larger. They built this ramp. And what the Jewish people would do is throw these stones down to kill them, big boulders. So the Romans were smart, got their Jewish captures to build this dirt ramp, because why would you kill your own brethren? It took them three years, and eventually they made their way all the way up to the top. And what Josephus says about them is they decided they were never going to go into captivity, they being the Jewish people that ran up there. So they, they took all of the heads of the houses, they got together and said, you must kill everybody in your family, and then we will get here and we'll draw lots. And if there was 12 of them, the, the long, the long uh, straw that they would draw, they would be killed by someone. And it would go down, and whoever drew the smallest straw would kill the last person and then have to take their own life. We know this because there was six ladies that hid in the cistern because they did not want to die. Uh, two were adults and four were uh, little girls that were hiding. And essentially, when this last person killed himself, it was the end of the Pharisees. Now, you might be asking all these questions. I thought it was against the rules to kill yourself, but they figured they would die as a martyr even if they would go to hell. Now, granted, that was their belief system. There's forgiveness of sin. But this essentially is how Pharisees died out. No more Pharisees. But why are we still talking about Pharisees 2,000 years later? Because that spirit is still in us, I believe. And we still have to fight this grace and truth and trying to wrestle it out. So as we continue on into Matthew 23, let's see what happens. We pick up at verse 6. They love to sit at the head of tables and at banquets and the seat of honor in the synagogues. They love to receive respectful greetings as they walk in the marketplace and to be called rabbi. Don't let anyone call you rabbi, for you have only one teacher and all of you are equal as brothers and sisters. And don't address anyone here as on earth as father, for only God in heaven is your father. And don't let anyone call you teacher, for you only have one teacher, the Messiah. The greatest among you must be a servant, but those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Jesus is saying, they are in control. They interpret the scripture correctly. They are not living by it. And what Jesus has come to do is, is to take that law, show that the law simply reveals sin in our lives and that he's going to do something about it. And as through the verses 8 through 12, what he's saying is, is they love the position that they are in because they are holier than thou. They feel as if they are better. That's why they feel that they deserve to get the seat of honor at the banquets. They love the respect. They love to walk around with their big prayer boxes so they could say, look at that guy. He's holy. So how are you doing so far? Have you thought of anyone who's a Pharisee yet? No? Is there anyone that you're considering thinking, man, they sure love to show how holy they are. 
How about yourself? Are you thinking, man, how many things have I done just so that way it looks good rather than it being good? And in that same vein, anyone here having a difficulty of continuing to work through grace versus works versus appearance? So as Jesus is teaching his disciples, he turns to the disciples with the Pharisees right there and calls them out. Again, these, these Pharisees has this encounter with Jesus 82 times. Each gospel ends pretty close to the end with a comment about the Pharisees themselves or what had happened. John and Luke talk about how they end their last uh, conversation with the Pharisees about how the rejection of Jesus and how Judas of Iscariot was paid and how he comes back to give back the money. Matthew and Mark talk about the rejection of Christ in general and they're glad that he's gone. As I mentioned a little while ago, a couple of weeks ago, I went to a pastor's conference, and one of the subjects covered at this pastor's conference was pastors equals Pharisees. What's the difference? Well, that wasn't the title, but that's basically how I understood it. And one of the takeaways that we were challenged with as pastors was they asked, consider what passage in the Bible regarding grace is most difficult for you. And there are several that jumped in my mind, but there was one in particular that popped into my mind when I was considering what Bible passage on grace is most difficult for me. And then we were asked, as you take these verses, as you consider it, what is it about your Pharisee heart as a pastor that is so difficult for you to accept God's grace? Or... He said, more importantly, H.B. Charles Jr. said, that you do not give grace. So I'm going to read you mine, the one that came to my mind. Interesting enough, when I told my brother that this was my scripture, he said, yeah, I could see that. (laughs) I asked him what his was, and he said, the prodigal son. And to my reply, I was like, you were a prodigal son. And he said, and you were an awful older brother. Man, he's smart and witted. Oh, that's why he can't ever come up here and teach. But so as we consider that, but just quickly, I'm taking his on his own for his, and then I'll read you mine. He was talking about the prodigal son, how he was the son that ran away. He asked his father for his inheritance and spent it and ran away. And then eventually he realized that it would be better to be a slave in his father's home than to be living in the pigsty. So he comes home, and the father, of course, father being Jesus, runs to him, welcomes him home. His sin is identified. He also mentioned that he's also been the older brother. Here I was making it about me. I thought he was saying I was the older brother, which I was, but he also said he was the older brother. How he stands on the porch and points and says, why are you giving all of these people so much grace? Look at what they've done. So as he was considering his, I will read from Matthew 21 through 16, the one that I think I struggle with grace the most 
at least in this season of my life. Matthew 21 through 16. It says, For the kingdom of heaven, and Jesus is teaching this parable, for the kingdom of heaven is like the landowner who went out early one morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He He agreed to pay the normal daily wage and sent them out to work. At nine o'clock in the morning, he was passing through the marketplace and saw some people standing around doing nothing. So he hired them, telling them he would pay them whatever was right at the end of the day. So they went to work in the vineyard. At noon, and again at three o'clock, he did the same thing. At five o'clock that afternoon, he was in town again and saw more people standing around, he asked them. Why haven't you been working today? They replied, because no one would hire us. The landowner told him, Then go out and join the others in the vineyard. That evening, side note, an hour later, that evening he told the foreman to call the workers in and pay them, beginning with the last worker first. When those hired at five o'clock were paid, each received a full day's wage. When those hired first came to get their pay, they assumed they would receive more. But they too were paid a day's wage. When they received their pay, they protested to the owner. Those people worked only one hour, yet you've paid them just as much as you paid us who worked all day in the scorching heat. Let's stop there. Does anyone have a problem with this story? I mean, you worked one hour and you got paid a full day's wage, and I've been here since six in the morning. Dude, bro, that's not fair. Now, now, I can qualify that and say, I understand this is a parable, and I understand this is about salvation, and I understand that sometimes it's difficult when people accept Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior on their deathbed, and I understand that people can have a hard time with that, and I understand that I could even have a hard time with that, and I understand that it's unfair, but before we consider that unfair, What God has really done in my life and continues to do is really what's unfair is what happened to Christ on the cross. That's what's unfair. Secondly, the person who accepts Jesus Christ on their deathbed, assuming that they're a very old person, what's unfair is they have not walked with Christ their whole life. Where I have, mostly. So as we consider this, so in my mind, when I was asked which, which story about grace is so difficult... I'm okay with people coming to Christ at the very last minute. Please don't wait to the last minute. But what I find is if I'm working really hard and all day long and someone shows up an hour before and gets paid just as much as me, that's tough. Now let me apply this a little bit more. If I work really, really hard on something and I present it, or it's a message, and I preach a message, and then someone comes along, and they haven't even prepared anything, and they come and they share with their life group five minutes of something they didn't prepare, and it's golden. Well, that's unfair, God. Like, do you know how many hours I put in this sermon? Why do you give them some supernatural insight? That's so unfair. Do you not know how hard I work, God? So it makes sense, and now even if you consider those of you who have employees or those that oversee employees or any of it, you think, there's no way I'm paying an employee 
there's no way I'm paying an employee who just started who's only worked as much as my veteran guy or girl. Like, don't you feel for me? Don't, don't you just say it's unfair? I'm looking for sympathy here. <laughs> but here's Jesus' answer. Let's go back to verse 12. Start there. Those people worked only one hour, and yet you paid them just as much as you paid us, who worked all day in the scorching heat. And Jesus answered, one of them, friend, or he answered one of them, friend, I haven't been unfair. Didn't you agree to work all day for this usual wage? Take your money and go. I wanted to pay this last worker the same as you. Verse 15, is it against the law for me to do what I want with my money? Should you be jealous because I'm kind to others? So let's look at these three questions that Jesus answered. Remember Jesus, even in his parables, he never answered, well, only three times he answers a question directly. Everything else is a question or a reflection or a new question to another question. But look at, the, look at how he answers. It's unfair this guy only worked one hour and he got paid as much as me and I worked all day. His first question he asks, didn't you agree to work all day with the usual wage? When you accepted Christ at the very beginning, earlier on in your life, didn't you agree at the beginning to follow me? Did you agree or not? The next, then the next question is, is it against the law for me to do what I want with my money? Is it against the law for me to give out grace the way that I want to? Is it against the law? Is anything that I'm doing with my money, in this case with grace, against the law? And then the heart of the question should you be jealous because I am kind to others? Huh. So when we were challenged with taking this scripture and that we struggle with grace on, or we broke off to do that on our own and we were looking at it, one of the, one of the statements that was made pretty close to the end of the conference was, are you trying to be a blessing police? Are you running around seeing if God is blessing someone too much? So what the Pharisees, what the Pharisees were saying is, look at how we followed all of the rules. We deserve so much more. We don't think we're getting enough, so we are going to wear extra wide prayer boxes on our head and shoulders, shoulder to show you. In other places, when, when Jesus talks about praying, he also says, don't babble like the Pharisees. He says, one in pagans and one like the Pharisees. Don't let your left hand know what your right hand's doing. But yet, what they're doing, what the Pharisees, what the heart of the matter of the Pharisees is, look at how good of a Christian I have been, and I'm not getting enough attention for it, so I'm going to blow my own horn to make sure everyone knows. But Jesus asked, did you not agree when you came to me to follow me? 
And the next one, is it against the law? Well, maybe it's against the law. Maybe it's so unfair that you are forgiving people. This is how you should do it, Jesus. And only when they stop doing it, only when my brother stops cussing like a sailor, you should bless him. What's interesting that I've seen going back to that is as much as I wanted him to be a a better brother, a a, a better guy, and me thinking slap, and that's the most ridiculous thing the more I say it out loud and admit that I slapped him. It wasn't until there was a change of heart, but looking back, hindsight, of course, I saw how God was walking with him, and slowly, 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 without my intervention or my hand, God was blessing him all while he was dealing with the heart issue. Is it against the law and the order in which Jesus decides to bless? And then the real big question for any of us who struggle with a Pharisee heart, is it just really a jealousy issue? Do you think God is blessing someone the way you feel like you should be blessed because you've been such a good Christian for all of these years? And really what, what it comes down to is I remember about 15 years ago I was at my in-law's church and I remember this statistic. The pastor read a statistic He's a wonderful pastor. He's still a pastor there. From Barna, and, he's, and that stuck with me. 68% of churchgoers respond with the answer no to this question. 68% of churchgoers 15 years ago responded, to, responded with a no to this question. Would you do church differently if it meant more people came to the saving grace of Jesus? 68% no. No. I couldn't... That doesn't make sense. It's just church. And then you read it, and Barna does such a great job of explaining it. People qualified. Here's the thing. The question was not, would you give up your core values of Jesus Christ? Would you water down the messages? Would you on and on and on? It's simply, would you do church differently? No, because I want what I want, and I like what I like. And again, if we consider this, grace is not an excuse for sin. It is an answer for it. And again, as the oldest brother who followed the rules, thought it was, I still think it's unfair when people don't follow the rules deep down in my heart. These three questions that Jesus asked these people resonate with me. Did you not agree to follow me, Dallas? Yes. Is it against the law of my grace to give it out? No, it is not. Are you jealous because I'm kind to others? The answer is yes. Yes. So as we consider these Pharisees and that they ended up dying and the majority of it of them dying at Masada because they felt like they needed to take over the Romans. They felt like they knew best and yet that spirit of being a Pharisee, a hypocrite can still remain in us. So I didn't set up John Grover very well to come share this wonderful <laughs> sorry John this, uh, his encounter with Jesus, but it has nothing to do with Pharisees, but hey, let's welcome up John. Are you, are you trying to tell me something, Dallas? Well, I did talk to Dallas about sharing an encounter with Jesus that uh, actually my family had. So um, Linda and I had the privilege of taking our two of our daughters, uh, Gina and Amy, 
and their two oldest children, Tyler and RJ, to Cambodia. And as we pre prepared for that trip, I did all the usual, uh, you know, booking hotels and transportation and all those things that uh, go into a trip like that. And the one thing I could not get done was to book the simple trip from the airport to our hotel. Everything else worked out fine. I work with a company that does all that. And week after week, in preparation for that trip, I could not get them to respond to that little piece of it. So at the last minute, I just called the hotel and said, would you send someone to pick us up at the airport? Problem solved. We got off the airplane with all of our luggage. We get out to the front, and here's this young man with this van from the hotel to pick us up. And uh, we load everything up and head back to the hotel. It's an hour away, and I sat in the front, as I always do, to see if I can talk to someone about Jesus. And um, so at one point I said, you know, uh, so I asked him his name. His name is Saravut. Saravut. And uh, he was in his, I think, late 20s or so. And uh, I said, you know, Saravut, we are Christians. And he goes, oh, I I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian. So we had this great little conversation about that. And um, then he began to share his story that in two days he was losing his job at the hotel. He had no moto, which in Cambodia is a very serious thing. You have no transportation. You don't eat. You don't work. You don't do much of anything. So he had no family, he said. He had nothing. And what was interesting is that before we went on this trip, we spent time with our daughters and our grandkids praying about what God would do on this trip. And they had taken a little extra money with them in expectation that God would show them a way to use that money to bless someone. Well, here we are. I mean, the very first day, the first hour, we meet this young man, and we get to the hotel, and and uh, so that afternoon and evening, we talked about it. We talked about James chapter 2, about caring for people that are in need, and uh, all the scriptures that go along with all of that, and we decided to help Sarah Voot by buying him a moto. So the next day, Linda and I went down, we found him, and we gave him $1,000, which is not a very good moto, but is transportation. And this young man cried. He hugged us. He said, no one has ever done anything nice to me in my life. And he was just overwhelmed. So we then went on our trip for the next 10 days or so, and we're traveling around Cambodia, and I'm trying to call Saravut, and I can't reach him. We get back to uh, Phnom Penh. The girls and the grandkids get on the plane, go home. Linda and I stayed for a while, meeting another group. And I finally got a hold of Saravut, and uh, he was very down. He said, oh, John, I, I found a job at a construction site, but they don't pay me any cash at all. It's just two meals a day they pay me. And I sleep on the floor at night of the construction site. And I don't know what I'm going to do. There's no way out of this. And so I got off the phone, and Linda, what are we going to do? We've already given. So apparently he sold the moto. This has gone now. Um, Later that late afternoon, early evening, I called him again, and his voice was just chipper and excited. He was talking so fast I could hardly understand him. And he finally said, I want you to talk to somebody. And he hands the phone to this man who says, hello, my name is Philip, in perfect English. Turns out that morning, Sarah Voot was so down that he began, he, he said, I remembered that when I was a little boy, I had some family, some distant relatives. So he said, I begin walking today across Phnom Penh. It's a city of over 2 million people. 
And I began asking people, hey, do you know somebody named Chia? That's their last name, Chia. No, no. And he just kept asking and walking. Late that afternoon, someone said, hey, I think I know someone named Chia. And called this family who turned out to be distant relatives of Saravut. They come pick him up, take him back. And it's about that time that I called him again. So I made arrangements for Linda and I the next morning to go meet this family. It's an hour away by Tuk-Tuk. We get there, and we had this instant connection with this young man named Philip, the youth pastor, and his parents, who were pastors of the church, and their family. This little this circle in the church, little red plastic chairs, you know, like half the size that I need. And we all sit there, and we have this wonderful time of fellowship, like we'd known them forever. They gave Sarah Buddha a job. They found him a job at a nonprofit close by, good friends of theirs. They gave him a room to stay in. They fed him. They clothed him. They took him in his family. After we left, Saravut stole all the money from the nonprofit and left. Turns out Saravut has a very serious gambling addiction. So he burned everyone that he knew. Uh, to this day, we don't know where he is or what has happened to him. We believe he's in prison. What's interesting about this is that this family, Philip and his family, have become the largest ministry center of what Cambodia Impact does in Cambodia, in Phnom Penh and south all the way to the Vietnamese border. This church is the church I've shared with you before that has this great youth group that meets every night of the week. Um, we've just funded a retreat for them of 120 people. 80 of which are youth that are on fire. Philip tells us just two days ago that there is this amazing uh, transformation taking place in their church, their community, that there are kids as young as nine years old that want to be involved in worship, ushering, and everything the church does. So they are training new leaders for the cause of Christ. Last year, 638 people came to Christ through that ministry. This year, I think it'll be even more. So here's this young man that lied, cheated, and stole that God used to introduce us to the most phenomenal ministry we've ever seen in Cambodia. So we pray for Saravut. We pray that uh, he, the lost will be found again. He is the prototypical prodigal son. And so uh, pray for Saravut. If you think about him, I think he'll be restored someday. So that's our family uh, encounter with Jesus. That story did not go in the way that you thought it was going to go, did it? <laughs> now, just, just to consider that, what John had shared, when John told me that, I think it was Tuesday, one of the first thoughts that came to my mind is, what's going to happen to that guy? Like, that's so unfair. Like, I, to be completely honest, I was thinking, that's not right. I'm so glad that John, uh, or Cambodia Impact, that ministry is blessed, people are coming to Christ, but what about Saravu? Like, I want him to come to Christ, but I do want justice, let's be honest. <laughs> so as we consider that, just as we close and prepare our hearts to receive communion, it's those three questions that Jesus asked in his parable from Matthew 20. Did you not agree to follow me when you accepted me as Lord and Savior? 
Is what I'm doing with my grace against the law? And are you jealous because of the way that I am blessing others? So we are going to receive communion. Everyone who has put their faith in Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior is welcome to receive communion. Some people will come down and pass out the elements. The worship team will come and lead us in a few songs and we'll receive communion all together. Let's pray. God, thank you so much that um, you don't treat us the way that sometimes we treat others. And thank you that you came not just for me, but for everyone, whosoever calls upon you, Lord. And Lord, uh, forgive me and forgive us when we fall back into a, a pharisaic heart where that Pharisee faucet continues to drip. We just pray that you plug it up and stop it, Lord. But most of all, when it does take place in our lives, will you reveal it to us, Lord? We know that there's rules and commandments that you desire us to be holy as you are holy. We're not looking for a loophole or a get-out-of-jail-free card from doing what is right, Lord, but yet um, we can't live there because we can't do that in our own. The things that we do that is good is good because of you, Lord, yet you satisfy that need. But as we are reminded with the Pharisees, let, let us not be jealous of the way that you bless other people. Let us... Be thankful, let us celebrate, let us not try to be the grace police, Lord, but just the grace dispensers, Lord. Lord, if we just stop to consider what you've forgiven in our life, that should just reveal to us how much we need you. And Lord, I think that just helps us be reminded of how good and holy you are. So Lord, as we prepare our hearts to receive communion, will you just speak to us? Thank you for not giving up on us and that you continue to pursue us. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.